Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us today on the podcast is Director of Quantitative Research Denise Chisholm to discuss credit rating agency Fitch's downgrade of the U.S. government credit rating and how it plays into the ongoing inflation story. Denise says that valuation spreads remain wide in the equity market and are resting at the exact same levels as they were during the trough of correction after the 2011 debt downgrade, a historical pattern that points the ability of markets to shrug off current uncertainty. Denise also explains to host Pamela Ritchie that in some ways the debt story is related to the inflation story, with the debt-to-GDP ratio markedly higher on the government side than on the consumer side. This episode was recorded on August 3rd, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. What did you think of this? The markets kind of shrugged it off initially, the Fitch downgrade I'm talking about. But uh, what do you think now? Yeah, certainly in the bond market, uh, you could say that. Uh, Look, I think context matters. So obviously we have an analog situation back in 2011 where we had a debt downgrade. We also had a European debt crisis and the general economy was in much, much worse shape relative to how it is right now, given the unemployment rate, uh, that we were coming just coming out of the financial crisis in a much more vulnerable position. Now, fast forward to today, I think that the most interesting part about the comparisons when we make it versus 2011 is remember that the equity market is a discount mechanism. So we've seen a lot of bad news events really over the course of the last six months, including our own banking crisis, including sort of a debt showdown uh, and many other factors. And yet the market has been able to climb this wall of worry. Why is that? It is because valuation spreads are still quite wide in the equity market. Remember, that is a great mathematical expression of fear that you often see whenever investors sell anything they think is risky. They buy anything they think is safe, and it ends up with a valuation gap, which is this mathematical expression of fear that you sort of as an investor want to take the other side of and hope that the market will ultimately, over the course of a one-year time horizon, climb that wall of worry. What's interesting to me is that I was just looking at valuation spreads where they are right now, and they are at the exact same levels as they were in the trough of the correction after the 2011 debt downgrade. So, okay, so that's that's fascinating. Yes, that is a way to show it wouldn't be surprising to me, based on these historical patterns, that if the market ultimately didn't, in fact, just shrug it off. Uh, given that some fear has already been 
um, existing in the equity market for quite some time. The other thing is I think that investors should take note that this has been a very strong rally with a very sharp cyclical rotation. And in some ways it was, I would say, due for a change in potential trend over the short term. The pace of advance was likely not going to be sustained. Even if you look at just a Fibonacci sort of retracement of the rally that we've seen, that would lead to a base correction of let's call it five to seven percent, which is in line with what you see historically when equities have advanced this much. I think the question for investors is as you think through that logical contraction that may or may not be around this debt ceiling or this debt downgrade issue, do you want to be buying that dip or would you like to be selling it for a future exogenous event? And I think what we just talked through in terms of valuation spreads suggests that the risk reward is still favorable over the one-year time horizon because of what the equity market is still currently discounting. And um, for those that are in there and hold, uh, you know, do you hold, I guess is right. the question. Right, yeah. right. Or just stay the course, right. Just stay right. the course. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So that's, that's still that's still on. Um, so it is a different time, uh, certainly than than 2020-11 from the debt perspective. I mean, when you when you take a look at the type of experiment that's been going on since Ben Bernanke, since since the the great financial crisis um, and the quantitative easing that we all got very very used to, um, it, it is a different. We're in a different point on this journey, aren't we? Um, I guess just sort of take us through where, where you think we are on that journey. Are we, are we back to normalization? Where are we end, at the end of it? What, what does that mean for the debt story? We might be get, well, in some ways, the debt story is related to the inflation story, which is related to the rate story, right? So if there's one story around the debt, it is the fact that interest rates are much higher uh, than they have been with a much bigger debt load, right? So debt to GDP is obviously markedly higher than we've ever seen on the government side, and it's less true on the consumer side and the business side, which is where we saw the leverage really in the financial crisis. So in some ways, the leverage has shifted, and now with the rise in interest rates, it's getting less affordable. The interesting thing to me is we'll see how the projections sort of pan out is that I'll, I'll say two things based on that. One is that when you look at overall interest payments and even the projected interest payments as a percentage of GDP, you might be surprised to know we're still not back to the levels that we were in the 1980s. So despite the fact that we have much more debt and interest rates have gone up rapidly, we were in a much more situation relative to the overall economy uh, in, in, in the 80s, which is not to say that this is good news, but is to say that it's not quite anomalous yet and that we have been here before and ultimately resolved the issue. Now, how this gets resolved, the worst way for this to get resolved, and I think this, you know, in some ways investors' major concern is via a currency crisis. To the extent that it becomes evident in the market that the U.S. cannot finance its debt, then you would sell the treasuries you own, which would end up with a sharp depreciation of the dollar and in this doom loop. That right now has a less likely chance of happening just because all of the other currencies are in quite the same boat. So it does become that how you get a currency crisis when all the other currencies that you would own to hold potentially or other treasuries that you would own to hold have a similar debt situation. So in some ways, the way you can think of the risk is to think about it from a relative debt situation. And in that relative debt situation, the U.S. doesn't really seem so bad. 
right now in terms of what you saw coming out this morning, um, non-farm productivity underestimated double the pace that we expected. There is still more growth in the U.S. than abroad. So when you're thinking of the debt that you want to own as a debt holder, as a barn holder, or even just an investor, from a risk reward perspective, growth is just as meaningful as interest rate payments, which is to say that the why behind interest rates is just as important as the level to the extent that you can finance because growth is strong is a very different situation versus growth contracting or growth decelerating. Yeah, so if you're gonna own debt, a government level debt, you want it in a, a government that's overseeing an economy that is growing, which is hard to find and a lot of a lot of corners of the earth. Can I just ask you about the currency? I mean, would Japan be an exception to that? Japan is an exception to that in the sense that, you know, in, in some ways, it's an exception to that in a weird way, in the sense that I think we're, you know, 350%, depending on how you calculated debt to GDP in the Japanese economy. And for the most part, you haven't seen that big drawdown in GDP or that big problem for GDP growth. It hasn't been good GDP growth, but it hasn't been quite poor GDP growth either. Now, part of the reason is the exception is because they own their own debt, um, as opposed to the U.S., where foreigners own most of the debt where foreign sovereigns own most of the debt. So that is a little bit of a different situation. But I do think you have to look empirically at the data. When we talk about government debt and competing future growth, I think Japan is an interesting anomaly to that theory. Right, even going back to 2009, I think that there were a lot of academic support around the notion that to the extent that you add this much to the debt, you subtract from GDP growth. And in some ways that really didn't turn out to be quite as true as the as the, um, the theorist theorized. So I think that there is a lot more to unpack around the debt story and a relative debt story that makes the math not nearly as clean. Meaning that when you theorize around debt, it's usually holding all else equal, but you can't hold all else equal. One of the things that I think that people are holding equal is sort of this, you know, unnatural decline in productivity that we've seen and the contraction in earnings that we've seen, illustrating the fact that the U.S. economy can't grow. And that's true that it's not growing right now. GDI is contracting. GDP did come close to contracting two quarters ago and then bounced back. Earnings growth is contracting. That is all currently happening. But the question resides around whether or not that will likely be the case in 12 months. And a lot of the indicators that we've talked through and that I'm looking at suggest that that's not the case. So to me, the risk reward, even after the market rally, has stayed positive and in some ways shifted more positive because all the indicators now, or many of the indicators that I watch, are starting to point in that upside direction. You look at leading economic indicators that are in the bottom quartile and turning. You look at residential investment, which is, you know, pizza trough contraction and recessionary levels that also looks to be turning. The revisions that we've seen in terms of earnings growth is turning. And all of this is based around the deceleration that we've seen. And that's that, you know, headwinds turn to tailwinds that we have not seen in such, such, such a long time. So you have a, a recent note that sort of your question within that, that, that you wrote is if, if you knew what overall inflation would be in 12 months, and these are some of the leading indicators that 
at least lead you in a particular direction, what would returns look like ultimately, sort of, you know, from now and then ultimately a year out. So, so just take us through the indicators we've seen. You've mentioned those. Inflation's looking okay, right? Yes. So I get a lot of questions on, yeah, but it's still above the Fed's target of 2%. So as much as inflation has decelerated, overall is at three, but core has been sticky. Well, core has been sticky because shelter has been sticky and shelter's lagged. But yes, core has been sticky, but it's still decelerating as well. And all of these things are decelerating, but still higher than the Federal Reserve wants it. But when you ignore what the Federal Reserve has wanted, which is relatively recent in history, I think the 2% only became a thing in like 2016, 2015, and it was really on the opposite side, which is to say that there was forward guidance to get inflation to 2% on the upside because we were worried about deflation. So if you just ignore guidance because it can shift and change because 2% wasn't always a thing, if you just look at how inflation, what it means to the equity market, through the 4% inflation, which is about where we are and about where we're going to be from a core inflation perspective, is really the sweet spot historically for equity market returns. It's the highest average returns, it's the highest odds of market advance, and it's the most cohesive measured by risk-adjusted returns. So of all the buckets to inflation between, you know, negative to, you know, 0% inflation and all the 2% gaps all the way up, this is actually the best news for the equity market. So in some ways, yes, it's not exactly where the Fed might want to be, but it seems like as it relates to the equity market, a little inflation is perhaps a good thing, most likely because it is correlated to once it gets in that zone, correlated to future profitability. Once inflation becomes either not too hot or not too cold, that's the sweet spot for corporate America being able to plans to be able to build and then ultimately be able to profit from that. Fantastic. Okay, great questions rolling in all about what you're saying and, and actually asking specifically once we sort of put that in perspective uh, and what it means for, for corporate America, ultimately which sectors take start to look pretty good on the top and also those that don't look so good on the bottom. Yes. So always get to that for sure. So my note that will be coming out this week that will ultimately be on LinkedIn, we have seen very aggressive cyclical rotation. And what I talk about in terms of cyclical rotations is, you know, I'll call the defensive sectors, consumer staples, utilities, healthcare, to a lesser extent, always energy that I'll actually uh, put in there. Um, and then to a lesser extent, communication services got that um, telecom component, and then everything else I call cyclical, which is not common vernacular, but I call it economically sensitive. So that's technology, consumer discretionary, financials, industrials, materials, and sometimes real estate. If you bucket these two things together and you look at them relative to each other, what we've seen over the last six months is a top decile, top 5% move in terms of the cyclical rotation mostly because it's out of defense on a relative market and mostly into technologies. The technology has clearly been leadership. So that rotation has seen an extreme version. So the question you might ask is, is then there any gasoline left in the tank to actually manage the continuation of that cyclical rotation? And it's interesting, when you look through history, the more cyclicals have been in favor, the more likely they are continuing to it is almost as if stocks are forward-looking in and of themselves, and if you've seen a cyclical rotation, the earnings recovery that hasn't come through yet is even more likely. 
So when you've seen a cyclical rotation like ours, 100% of the time historically, past performance is no guarantee, but 100% of the time historically, earnings have grown over the next 12 months. And by an average. By, I'm sorry, say that again, sorry. By an average of about 20 to 30%. So, I mean, this is your classic, which you have told us over the years, a, a ball in motion stays in motion type, type feel to it. Yes. Yes. So that's in some ways, like, again, we've seen a, a massive rotation. So, you know, over the next one to three months, I think anything can happen. But when you think about how I look at the market and say, OK, the data has changed. What do I think of the risk reward now over a one year time horizon? And everything I'm seeing in the data says that the cyclical rotation, specifically technology, consumer discretionary, and industrials, has legs. And it's still probably only, you know, you can sort of squint and see, like, where are we in the, you know, in the innings. I think, you know, maybe we're in the fourth or fifth inning. And certainly the pace of advance can't be maintained. But over the course of the next year, I think the risk reward is still positive in those sectors. And I think it's still negative in consumer staples and utilities. And then I'm going to add real estate in here. So if you think about that like two-step process of the first underperformance in defense is really the relative valuation compression. Right. So if we fast, if we rewind to, I guess it was June of last year, consumer staples were in the top quartile of their historic valuation, as was utilities, as was healthcare, as was low vol. Right. So now we've seen them sort of out of that, you know, derate from that. So the stocks are not nearly as expensive as they once were. They're back in median levels. So I think a lot of investors are like, well, if defense is now at median levels, maybe my risk reward has shifted. And certainly if you're only looking at valuation as the driver, that risk reward might have shifted. But the problem is relative earnings is the next driver. To the extent that earnings do in fact recover over the next 12 months, which is exactly what my indicators are suggesting is very likely, then it is very unlikely that consumer staples and utilities and to a lesser extent healthcare keep up. So right now, consumer staples, and I'm going to pick on that sector, has positive real earnings growth, meaning that they're generating higher earnings growth in the overall market. And I think investors are saying, well, that, that's a good thing. Well, what that's what usually happens when earnings growth is contracting in the broader market. And it's usually a negative signal because the exact opposite happens over the next year. So if the first leg of underperformance and defense has been valuation compression, I think the second leg of defense underperformance is going to be the lag in relative earnings growth. So I still think headwinds remain for defense and opportunities remain for economically sensitive sectors. But again, technology and consumer discretionary have run. I think industrials have run a little less. So maybe you shift your risk reward there. I will say that equal weighted looks more attractive than cap weighted to me right now based on valuation spreads and based on relative valuation. So that's a consideration as well if you're thinking about being nimble after such a large um, rise in the overall index and the cyclical rotation. So I think that there's some nuances that you play, but ultimately I think that that ball in motion that you suggested does likely stay in motion for the next year. Um, amazing. Coming back to where we started, this is a specific question about um, the debt downgrading. So what are potential impacts of the U.S. debt downgrading, uh, specifically on U.S. banks, if any? So, uh, you know, on banks specifically, it's hard to get. Um, trying to think of a specific problem for banks that's more from the debt downgrade. 
than the constraints that we've seen in terms of overall contraction in London. Right. Okay. I, I think in some ways, like the government debt issue, as it relates to around rates, to the extent that you saw a situation where people didn't want to hold our debt and rates were markedly higher, that would be a bigger issue for the banks. Um, from a headwind perspective, to the extent that that's, you know, maybe a little bit more risky, you might call that a headwind. But I think from a base case perspective, the bigger issue for financials, and I think the financial sector in general, is that sort of shrinking of the loan pool and the impairment of profitability in some ways caused a little by the yield curve, but more around the fact that they need to pay depositors more than they have paid depositors. So in some ways, they're under earning their potential debt downgrade or not. So I think that the bigger headwinds for the financial sector is much more uh, in the financial sector itself than government debt. And that's what you see in the statistics, which is to say that overall corporate debt, financial debt and consumer debt tends to be much more impactful to equities than government debt partly because it can get financed and the whole thing plays out over a much longer period of time. Uh, Options, in terms of even when you think about Go ahead. When, um, <clears throat> I think you mentioned it uh, briefly earlier. I just, there's a question on this, so I wanted to come back to it. When does energy begin to maybe look interesting again? I mean, it is economically sensitive, so it does fit there, but it's also had <clears throat> the incredible run that it had a year ago. So. Is there a place for energy? I think it's tricky for me. So I will say, like, as much as we consider energy um, economically sensitive, and it is, when I look at the equities, the way they perform, it tends to be more defensive. And it's partly around that fact that it's what got you into this mess, not what necessarily recovers from this mess. And the way I think about it, and energy is a little bit of a, a ways to being a positive risk reward for me. Now, look, I mean, it's really stressed right now. Technology has under, you know, outperformed substantially and energy is underperformed substantially. So I think you could probably argue for a closing of that gap a little over the course of the next three to six months. But when I look over a one year time horizon, I struggle with the risk reward behind energy because ROEs and, you know, operating margins are at all time highs. And usually when they're at all-time highs, earnings do not grow over the course of the next year. And if earnings do not grow over the course of the next year, you rarely get multiple expansion within that sector. So the problem behind energy is I would have to make the argument that it's massively different this time because energy is the one cyclical sector, and I mean cyclical in the exact sense of cyclical, where you get trough multiples on trough earnings. Now remember, Technology, you don't do that. You get peak multiples on trough earnings. That's the same for consumer discretionary. That's the same for industrials. Energy is the one sector where you get that trough multiple on trough earnings. So it's a really risky venture to say it's different this time. And I think it's going to be okay that earnings decline because the fact that the stocks are cheap is likely to offset it when that hasn't really been historically the case in the past. So again, stepping back to the argument, Energy's earnings have been very strong. Technology's earnings have been very weak, along with industrials, along with consumer discretionary, and along with financials. So if we fast forward to a year from now, what is likely to happen in the historical data? Flip-flop. Energy earnings are likely to lag. Technology, industrials, discretionary, and financials, maybe, are likely to lead, and that usually coincides with a relative performance gap. 
So that's what I see in the data. Yes, it could be different this time, but I'm a little bit wary of that conclusion, given that it has really been a very unique sector that has acted defensively and gotten us into this mess and that has gotten that trough multiples on trough earnings. So look, I mean, certainly the, the risk reward has shifted a little in the sense that you've seen this outsized gap between every other cyclical and energy. So if you want to play that tactically, you know, I can't really dissuade you from playing it tactically. But when I look at a one-year time horizon, I don't see energy as leadership. Okay, fascinating. And that's what we want to ask you about all of this. Okay, so this is another question that you, I think you may have partially answered when you talked about how equal weight looks right now, but thoughts on small caps and then also, or dividend players. Yes, so I'll talk small caps first. Maybe I'll talk dividend players. They're not as interesting to me, I gotta say, but you asked the question, so I'll try my best to answer. So small caps and mid caps still have that wide valuation spread. And that to me is what is more bad news is discounted in small and mids than is in the large cap. Point number two is that sort of that um, very narrow market that we have seen where only, I don't want to say only large caps, but large caps have really dominated, usually leads to a broadening trend within the rest of the market. Meaning that if price is up and breadth is narrow, that usually gets resolved by breadth joining price. So if there's chop or, you know, just a sideways trend for that, let's call it the mega cap eight, maybe you could loosely say for technology after the advance. If that's just sort of a sideways trend, I think that the risk reward is still positive, the upside for those rest of market equal weight sectors. Where I see valuation support being most specific is equal weighted tech, equal weighted industrials, and equal weighted discretionary. So that equal weighted index, regardless of what we might, it wouldn't surprise me to see at all if the S&P 500 actually contracts a little, but the Russell 2000 actually hits new highs. That would not be surprising to me based on what I see in the data, given the valuation spreads in small and mid are really wide and they're less wide, but not narrow, less wide in the S&P 5. So I do think that, you know, you can think through the nuanced opportunity in the space to say part of the market is already run. What market, what parts of the market are there interesting opportunities right now? And that's down the cap spectrum within those cyclical sectors. On dividend yield, I, mean, yeah. I think it depends on the sector. Um, dividend yield is in some ways a very cyclical factor now. So for those that are interested in the income part of the component, I always think that you need to consider the volatility of the coupon. So a lot of the time when we think dividend yield, we think staples and we think utilities, and utilities certainly are high yielding stocks. And I would say that on an absolute variation perspective, they, on an absolute variation perspective, they vary a lot less than the overall market. They have the same relative you know, perspective in the sense that they can lag just as much as they can leave in defensive times. But the problem is dividend yield has really shifted into a pro-cyclical component because we have a lot of energy in there now, we have some financials in there, we have a lot of industrials in there. So the coupon moves a lot more, or the, the, you know, the underlying uh, price moves a lot more, even though that the coupon is actually quite static. So I do think that there is something to consider behind the yield component as a factor in terms of that upside downside risk. And Ramon Prasad talks a lot about this as well, in terms of that shift. So if you are interested in yield for downside protection, know that it depends on what sector you are exposed to in terms of that downside protection. 
So that's a little bit of a nuance to say that there are some dividend components that are much more cyclical than other dividend components. What's your favorite question that you get when you do um, an Ask Me Anything? Like, what do people oh. ask? Oh, this is funny. Okay, so I actually like the personal question. I mean, I talk a lot about you know, investment opportunities and um, you know what's right in the market and how I think through data. Um, but even the philosophical questions on how do you think about explaining historical market probabilities to a broader audience, like the philosophical art and science component. I actually love to tackle those and like, how did you get into this business? I like to answer those as well because you know nobody really asks me that. So the ask me anything's on Reddit are, are funny and they're really all over the place. And it's always interesting to do because um, it's always an interesting ask. Like, I don't really know how I'm going to answer the question before I answer it. And then I'm always like, well, that was a really interesting thing to say. I never considered that before somebody asked it. That's good. So it's engaging and you sort of learn from the questions. Okay, so how did you get into this? Just briefly, and then we have to look at that. Yeah, backwards. Um, really, I mean, my husband was in finance, and I actually worked as a cost analysis um, consultant for the Department of Defense. Uh, which I liked statistically, and it was really interesting, but capital markets looked a lot more interesting. And I just started to call around for a different job because the government sort of wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I applied for an accounting job, and I called a recruiter, and they were like, do you know anything about accounting? And I was like, no, but, you know, I'm good at math, and I work really hard. And she was like, okay, I'm not going to hire you for this job, but I have a job for you. And it's at Fidelity Investments, and they're hiring for a new role. They call it the sector specialist role, and it's support for fundamental analysts. Analysts, and they really want people with a statistical background to say what truly drives their stocks. And when I got to Fidelity, the director of research, who was hiring at the time, said, look, we got a bunch of people that are, you know, are interested in terms of, you know, meeting with companies and building models and telling the story, but I don't have anybody to build what really we should be focused on. Is it relative sales growth? Is it sales growth? Is it operating margin? What drives the stock statistically? So I really wanted to hire people with a statistical background, not a fundamental background, to really put these two things together. And a lot of people that got hired with me wanted to go on to be fundamental analysts. And I said, I really, I honestly have no interest in doing any of that. So I ended up tackling all the sectors, developing what I call like the book of critical variables or the things that you watch. Um, and that's sort of where I started to generate this process that's a fairly nuanced version of fundamentals, but only through data. And then really a thought process around probabilities instead of what I think will happen, what has happened in the past and recognizing those patterns. So here I sit, you know, almost 25 years later, doing essentially the same investment discipline that in some ways I created out of just a self-learning because I had no idea what anything meant when I got here. And I used to call my husband on the phone and say, what do they mean by PE? And he's like, you should not be working there. <laughs> <laughs> but you are actually a creator. You, you have you have created something, built this, and... We are so lucky to speak to you about it on a somewhat frequent basis. So thank you for telling us. I, I, I could spend hours talking more about that, but we can't now. So um, no. wish you very well, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. 
while visiting Fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.